If you have a Bible, please take it and go to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we'll go to chapter 28. We'll be covering all of Genesis 28 this morning as we continue to think about the the God of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. In the book and then later in the the movie, The the Lord of the Rings, um, much of the story centers on these two individuals, two Two hobbits, Sam or Samwise and Frodo, and they are on a, a journey. And as they begin their journey, they um, set out, and they're on the outskirts of a town called Hobbiton, where they had both lived for all their lives, and Sam had lived there all his life. And at one point, on right at the very beginning of the journey, they're walking through this field, and in the movie, Sam stops, and he says to Frodo, he says, this is it. And Frodo says, this is what? And he says, if I take one more step, It'll be the farthest from home I've ever been. And Frodo says, come on, Sam. And then he says this. He says, remember what Bilbo used to say. It is, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. I like that. And life is that way, isn't it? That there are many things that are familiar to us. They are reassuring and comforting places that our feet have often traveled to. And yet, at some point in our lives, we, we leave those places, uh, and we never know where we might be swept off to. It might be that you actually literally leave those places, maybe when you first leave home, or when you go away to college, or, or maybe taking steps to move for a job, or um, some of you move to a new country at some point in your life. And that's, that's a big step, and you never know where your feet are going to take you. It may not be an actual physical move, it may be experiences that you've never experienced Things that are are joyful, but things that maybe are difficult. Uh, It could be a a betrayal. It could be a death. It could be sickness. It could be anger. Just unfamiliar places, scary places in our lives that we step into. We don't really know where we're going. And in our passage today, we're going to walk with Jacob as Jacob steps into an unfamiliar place. He's going places that he had never been before. And we're going to see how God meets him in that place and then how Jacob responds to God coming to him. And I just want us to ask this question this morning. When God meets us, how will we respond? So just a simple question. When God meets us on this journey in different places, how will we respond? Um, Let me kind of remind you of where we've been in the book of Genesis. For those of you who are like me, forget, or for those of you who uh, haven't been here. But we picked it up in chapter 25. And the text is moving away from the story of Abraham and zooming in on Isaac, the promised son of Abraham and his wife, Rebekah. So Isaac and Rebekah and this couple are supposed to carry on the blessing of God. And you remember right off the bat that there there are some struggles. They're supposed to possess the land of Canaan. And they're also supposed to have a ton of children. But the problem is that Rebekah is barren. And so we watch over the course of 20 years, which just takes a few verses as they pray, and God gives them the gift of not just one child, but of twin boys. And yet in the womb, these two brothers are fighting. And the war that was in the womb spills out, and it, and it happens in their real lives and their, their relationship. These brothers, it's Jacob and Esau. It's marked by deception. It's marked by division. And then the parents are playing favorites, and that's causing all these issues. Early on, Jacob actually tricks his brother uh, into selling. He tricks his brother Esau into selling him his birthright, this blessing as a firstborn for a a bowl of soup. Um, And 
we see Esau is sort of this, this profane man. He cares little for the things of God. But we also see Jacob. He's manipulating. He's calculating. He relies on his own wit and his wisdom to get what he wants, to get the blessing of God. And, and just sort of a mess. And, and this family is, is dysfunctional. And then we watch sort of the, the apex of that dysfunction last week as, as people are lying to one another to get blessing. Um, we saw as, as, uh, Isaac wanted to bless his son Esau against what God had said. Um, Re- Re- um, Rebecca hears about it, and these so, so many character names. Rebecca hears about it, and she gets in cahoots with Jacob, her favorite son, and so they lie to Isaac to steal the blessing. And then uh, Isaac finds out about it. Esau finds out about it. He says, "I'm going to kill my brother after my father dies. I will kill him." Rebecca hears this and says, "We got to get Jacob out of here." Otherwise, I'm going to lose both of my sons. And she says uh, to Jacob, or, or she says to Isaac, in another mild deception, she says, we need to send Jacob away so that he won't marry one of the Canaanite women. But really, it's to protect her son from Esau. And so we pick up that story, which is sort of continuing right into chapter 28. And we pick it right up and we see Isaac's response to um, Rebecca's suggestion that they send Jacob away to find a, a wife in uh, from the land of where they had come from. And it says there right in verse 1, and we'll read the whole chapter of, of Genesis 28. It says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had saw that the Can and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padanaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba. And went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, 
How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put his head, that he had put under his head, and set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Well, these scenes in chapter 28, they form this bridge. And it's a bridge from the drama that's between Jacob and Esau to the drama that's going to happen between Jacob and Laban. Uh, We're going from out of the frying pan and into the fire from one conflict to another. Um, And Laban will prove to be a little bit more difficult foe probably than Esau, actually. But they also form the bookend of the first part of two encounters that Jacob has with God. And, and these really define how Jacob is going to interact with the covenant God of Israel. And we see this first one here as he is leaving the land. And we're going to see the second one where he wrestles with God, if you remember that one, as he comes back into the land. In the first one, he is fleeing Esau. And in the second one, as he comes back in, he is scared to death of meeting Esau. And these two um, encounters with God form bookends. And we'll see exactly as we go on this journey where we're heading towards um, the text also shows us that the focus is squarely on Jacob. Um, Isaac, his father, and Esau, his brother, are going to fade to the background. They will play minor roles in the story from now on. The focus of the narrator is now on Jacob. We're going to break this text just into to four simple sections and, and walk through and then try to apply these things. So the first is, is Isaac's blessing on Jacob. The second is Esau's response The third is God's blessing on Jacob. And the fourth is Jacob's response. So we have Isaac's blessing on Jacob and how Esau responds to that. Then we're going to have God's blessing on Jacob and how Jacob responds to that. So that's how we'll break it down. So let's think, um, and again, we're thinking about this idea when God meets us, how are we going to respond to him? So the first thing that we see is Isaac's blessing on Jacob. Uh, In chapter 27, Part of the issue was Isaac's disobedience, right? So Isaac is willfully going against God's word. The prophecy was that, that Esau would serve Jacob. The older would serve the younger. But Isaac wanted to do what? He wanted to bless Esau. Why? Because he loved Esau. He liked Esau more. And so his, this was his favorite son. And so rather than follow God's plan, he took matters into his own hands. And he wanted to bless Esau. But notice how it changes in verse 1 of chapter 28. It says, Then Isaac called Jacob. So before he had called Esau, remember, he calls Esau in to bless him. But now he willfully, of his own volition, calls Jacob and says, I am going to call Jacob. And then it says he called him and blessed him and directed him. The directions are the first thing in verses 1 and 2. He tells him, don't take a wife from the women of the land. Instead, he sends him to Padan Aram, which would have been far north to relatives that were up there. And the purpose is, is not only that he would not that, that he would simply marry within the family, but also that he would marry within the faith. It's sort of a broad idea, but it's this idea that he would marry someone who who would fear the Lord, who who would respect his ancestors and 
and the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, that, that this woman would be willing to follow him in following this God. The instruction is similar to actually what Abraham does um, back in chapter 24. You remember he sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And where did the servant go? The servant goes to Laban, the same guy, into, into Padan Aram in the, the town of Haran. Here it's not the servant that's sent, though, is it? Jacob himself is, is sent. So the common issue is that they both need a wife. Isaac needed a wife, and so Abraham sent the servant. Jacob needs a wife, and so Jacob is sent himself. The threat with, with uh, in Abraham finding a wife for Isaac was he didn't want Isaac to leave the land. There was fear that if he left the land, he would never come back. But now they're firmly planted in the land, and the threat here is not leaving the land. The threat is actually that Jacob might be killed by Esau. And so Jacob has to leave the land, and it, it, it gets him out of the land to find a wife. So after these directions, then we have the blessing, though. And the blessing is so clear, it's, it's Isaac willfully gives him the blessing of Abraham. He'd been deceived back in chapter 27, but here he gives this blessing. He acknowledges that despite, can you imagine what Isaac is feeling, the fresh wounds of his wife and his son lying to him to get this blessing? And now he's going to willfully give it. And it's so clear, it's, it's the blessing of Abraham. He says, uh, may, you, may he give you the blessing of Abraham to you, to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. You know, I, I just think about Isaac and how hard that would be to do and the humility that that would take to, to willfully give that blessing to Jacob who had just lied to his face. I think that Isaac, though, is, is learning his lesson that he had failed. I think Isaac teaches us that a past failure doesn't require a present one. Just because you messed up in the past doesn't mean that you have to continue to do that. Just because you willfully rebelled against God doesn't mark you for the rest of your life as a rebel against God. Did Isaac mess up in chapter 27? He sure did. Did you, do you and I mess up? Yeah, like this morning you did. <laughs> Me too. But, but past failures, these, these past mistakes and sins, they don't define our, our present obedience. We're called to confess sins. We're not called to wallow in our sins. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. We're not to refuse grace. I don't think God asks us, asks us to pay penance, to, to punish ourselves for our sins. Why? Because Christ has punished himself for our sins. We are to confess our sins, but we don't have to pay for them. I think pride is the culprit when this is a problem. Pride causes us to, to keep on sinning, continuing to rebel against God. But it will also cause us to keep from moving beyond our sin and our failures. Refusing to accept the forgiveness of God is, is ultimately rooted in pride. That I'm going to make myself better. Or I can't humble myself to receive forgiveness. But humility, it confesses, we confess our sins for what they are. And then we move towards humility. I just, I just think about the humility of Isaac in this, that he's willing to say, I tried to bless Esau. That was dead wrong. And you remember he says earlier, he says, yes, and he will be blessed. You remember that in chapter 27. And that's sort of what he says here. Yes, Jacob is the one that will be blessed. He'd been tricked by his wife and his son. His plan has been thwarted, but now he obeys God. And so I, I just saw, see in that this, this call to us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to by God's grace, let's, let's confess our sins, all right? Let's be honest about our failures, the way that we all failed this week, the way that we all failed this morning. But let's not let those failures define us and say, well, I messed up, and so I'm just always going to be a screw-up. No. 
Isaac messed up big time. And he should have known better. And he recognized it. And then he moved on and he did what God had told him to do. A past failure does not require a present one. Well, that's, that's Jacob's blessing on Isaac. The second scene is sort of Esau's response. You'd think we'd talk about Jacob's response, which we'll see. But Esau is actually the one that's zeroed in on here. Esau's marriages are a theme. Have you noticed the theme throughout Genesis that Esau's marriages are brought up? So it's brought up at the end of chapter 26. Esau was 40 years old. He took Judith, the daughter of Miri, and the Hittite to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Same thing happens at the end of chapter 27. Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. And, and so there's this theme of Esau making poor choices, choosing to go outside of the line of blessing. His Canaanite wives are said to make life bitter twice for his parents. And so when he catches wind of that, through the blessing that's given to Jacob, he says, all right, I'm going to try to do something different. I'm going to try on my own, by my own efforts, to, to get the blessing of my family. And so he marries a daughter of Abraham. But outside of the line of blessing, he marries a daughter of Ishmael, who was not the promised seed. And so I think, again, it's this lesson we keep seeing over and over again, which is this. We need to seek God's blessing in God's ways not according to our own wisdom. We saw, I'll say it again, we, we need to seek God's blessing in God's ways, not according to our own wisdom. So last chapter, um, Jacob and Rebekah are seeking God's blessing through deception and through lying. And here Esau says, well, my parents don't like this. I want God's blessing. I want the blessing of my parents. So I'll just come up with a way to take care of it. But he doesn't go the way he's supposed to. He doesn't go with this this line of, of blessing. And I think underlying here, just as sort of a side comment, because I don't know that it's the real focus, is the emphasis on, on marriage and on who to marry and how important that is. Um, it, there's a theme that flows through scripture of marrying someone who is of a like faith and commitment to God and commitment to Christ, that that's, that's actually really important. Um, Paul reflects that when he says in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that we're not to be unequally yoked together. Um, I think just seeing the wisdom of marrying someone within this, this line of blessing, someone who would desire to walk with God as we are supposed to. Those of you who may one day get married, if you are a Christian, your greatest commitment is to Christ, ultimately. That is our ultimately greatest commitment. He is our master. And so if, we would, if you would marry someone who is not committed to Christ, but committed to themselves or to some other faith, then you're not committed to the same master. That's going to cause issues. Just like two oxen linked together, wanting to go two different ways, is going to cause issues. And so that's sort of, the, I think, just a theme that's brought out here. Again, I just feel compelled to say that, that, that your commitment is to Christ. And so as if you're someone who is looking for a spouse someday, that you want to marry someone who is as committed to Christ as you are. Otherwise, it's going to cause issues. Our love for Christ must be the love that overrides all others. And any threat to our devotion to Christ must be sacrificed. It's not easy. I've had many conversations with people where this is an issue. And, and they have fallen in love with someone who is, has a different devotion, a different religion, a different faith, or no faith at all. And they really love this person. And suddenly we're faced with the decision, do I love Christ or do I love this person? 
It's a difficult decision, and I think it just—it's a theme that sort of is woven throughout Scripture, and it's sort of underlying here. And so I feel compelled to bring it out. But Esau's response, we see, is to to sort of take matters into his own hands. But then the text moves on, and we move on to Jacob. And in response to his father's blessing, his father's blessing and his directions, Jacob leaves. He leaves the land of promise to save his life and to find a wife. Um, he's around 70 years old at this point, if you can imagine that. But he's going to live to be 147, so his life isn't even half over. Um, the trip from Beersheba to Padan Aram, which would have been way far north, is over 500 miles. It would probably have taken him over a month to get there. Um, and before he arrives there, we have the scene of verses 11 through 22. We find that it occurred in Bethel, which it wasn't called Bethel at the time, but later would be, which is about 60 miles from Beersheba, where he left from. And so it would have taken several, several days after his initial fleeing. You might kind of imagine what's going on in Jacob's mind at this point. Um, the initial shock of everything is, is maybe wearing off a little bit. Uh, reality is setting in. Maybe he's wondering if this is really a good idea. Um, Remember who Jacob is. Where's Jacob like to be? In the tent. Jacob is a homebody. Uh, he's a guy who liked being in the tent. His brother liked the outdoors. Jacob liked to sit in the lazy boy in the house. You know, that's some of we all have different temperaments. Some of you like the outdoors. Some of you like the indoors. Um, some of you like to go camping so you can realize how nice it is to have a house where you don't have to be camping all the time. Uh, but now he think about about Jacob. He's sleeping in the open air. And what's he got for a pillow? A rock. I mean, have you ever slept with a rock for your pillow? He's alone. Uh, he's away from everyone and everything that he had ever known. I mean, this would be a very vulnerable point for Jacob, I think. It would be some fear, surely. And so notice this third scene, God's blessing on Jacob. He's there and he sleeps. I, I just noticed as I was reading it this morning, the sun had set. And I was just thinking, you remember when, when God cuts the covenant with Abraham, that it's also in the dark. Uh, and then later on, when Jacob meets and wrestles with God, it's going to be at night. It's sort of a theme you see there. Uh, he has this vision, though, and it's of a ladder or of a stairway to heaven, which maybe makes you think of Led Zeppelin. Uh, but ironically, I was actually at uh, Denny's this morning because my family's in town. I needed to go somewhere and, and study and, the, and, and Stairway to Heaven was playing as I was preparing the sermon. How crazy is that? Uh, but long before Robert Plant sang about it, it was in the Bible. Um, and so Jacob sees this sort of portal, as it were, a stairway or a ladder that, that goes into heaven, and there's angels that are ascending and, and descending on it. They're sort of, it's like they're being sent into the world on tasks and returning after tasks. And, and at the top of the stairs, who's there? It's God himself, the Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh. It's a strange image, isn't it? But I think that the, what it's trying to convey is God's desire to, to be with his people. God's continued desire to bless the earth. Blessing is a huge theme to the book of Genesis, and God still has not abandoned his promise. He has not abandoned the world that he had made. Despite everything that happened in chapter 27, how foolish everyone's been, God still desires to be in, in his people's lives, to be active and to be involved. He's pursuing his covenant people. He's pursuing Jacob. His words then convey that, that same truth specifically to Jacob. He identifies him as, he says, I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm your, grand, I'm your grandpa's God. I'm your father's God. 
And then he blesses him. God himself blesses him with the blessing of Abraham. Promises him the land in verse 13. He promises to multiply his offspring. Promises to make them like the dust of the earth. Says that you'll be a blessing to everyone. And then there's these wonderful string of four phrases in, in verse 14. Just look at these. First he says, behold, I am with you. It's in present tense. Right now, Jacob. Right now in this barren, lonely place, away from everyone and everything that you know, I am with you. The next phrase, he says, and I will keep you wherever you go. Wherever you go, Jacob, you will be blessed. Whatever difficulty you walk into, I will preserve your life. And I will preserve this blessing that I'm giving you. I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. What a promise. As he's leaving, God says, I will bring you back. This is the land of promise. I'm giving you this land, and I promise you're not staying in Padan Aram. You will return to this place 20 years later. (laughs) He doesn't know that, but it's going to be 20 years. And then finally he says, and I will not leave you. He is with him in the present, and he also says, I will not leave you. Not only is God with him then, but he will remain with him. What an amazing set of promises, especially to a man sleeping on a rock away from everything that he knows. It's an amazing set of promises also to a man who has just deceived his father and is fleeing for his life. You know, in some ways, Jacob, I think, sees the wonder of all this. He responds. He says, I didn't didn't know where I slept. I, I fell asleep. I didn't realize that I was sleeping on in such an amazing place. My grandfather tells the story in World War II that that they slept in the Colosseum in Rome when they were stationed there. Can you imagine that? He he slept, you know, up on one of the floors in the Colosseum. And it's sort of this feeling of like, I didn't really know where I was sleeping. (laughs) And that's kind of what Jacob is saying. I'm in this amazing place and I didn't even know it. He he sort of, he responds maybe for the first time with fear. He said he was afraid. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I'm in some amazing place right now. Let me give you two thoughts thinking about this blessing of God. The first is this. God blesses us in spite of our unworthiness. God blesses us in spite of our unworthiness. I, I think we've hit on this, so I'll just kind of be simple with it. But Jacob is so, so, so unworthy of this kindness. He's a deceiver. He's rebellious. I mean, if you look at the narrative, Jacob, there's hardly anything redeeming about Jacob. If I'm signing with anyone at this point, it's Esau. Yeah, he he doesn't do the right thing, but he's trying, you know. I feel like he's at least trying. But Jacob, he's a nasty dude. And, and, and yet God blesses him. We're reminded God's choice to bless is unconditional. It has nothing to do with Jacob's worthiness. It has everything to do with God's graciousness. And that's true of us too, isn't it? God's goodness, God's blessing on us, God's kindness, God's grace to us is undeserved. It is not earned. I think most of the time we probably don't feel that way. Usually we don't feel like I deserve the blessing of God. Maybe you do. If you do, you're wrong. Uh, But often we feel unworthy, don't we? I can feel unworthy of God's blessing. And guess what? You are. (laughs) And so am I. 
But our worthiness actually has nothing to do with God's desire and his willingness and his ability to bless us. So many people say, oh, I'm not worthy of God's blessing. Yeah, but that has nothing to do with it. It really has no bearing on whether or not God is going to bless you and show kindness to you. The kindness and the love and the mercy and the grace of God are utterly and completely undeserved. Words like grace and mercy actually, in the the very definition, have the idea of them being undeserved. But God still blesses us with his presence. He blesses us with his goodness in spite of our unworthiness. You give me a list of all the reasons that you're unworthy. All the reasons that God should not bless you. And I would say you are exactly right. And it has nothing to do with whether or not he will bless you. Are you as bad as Jacob? (laughs) Have you ever lied to your blind father? Even if you have, God will still choose to come and to bless you. God blesses us in spite of our unworthiness. And then the second thought I think that we can draw is God meets us in places of need even when we aren't looking for him. God meets us in places of need even when we aren't looking for him. I think the text emphasizes the randomness of Jacob's actions. He has no idea why he landed in this spot. He doesn't choose to lay in this place for any reason. And in fact, he just stumbles on the gateway of heaven. He's not seeking God's blessing. He's not looking for God, but God is seeking him. All he's doing is running away from Esau. That's all he wants to do. And if he's looking for anything, he's looking for a wife. But God is chasing Jacob down. He's looking for Jacob. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are children of the promise by faith in Christ, then God is looking to meet us in places of need. Even if we're not looking for him. Sometimes when we are in a place like Jacob, when we are in an unfamiliar area, when we're scared, when we're unsure, we don't know what's going on, we're we're in fact maybe not looking for God, we're just trying to survive. But God is looking for us, he's looking to meet us. And he comes, and he comes with this sort of fourfold promise of verse 15, doesn't he? He says, I'm with you. I've given you my spirit. I'm walking with you. Even now, even in this difficulty, you can't see me, but I am with you. He meets us when we're, when we're lonely. He meets us when we're far from everyone that we know. When we're in a new place, literally. When you're in a new place and you're scared, God is with you. When we're just facing new obstacles, something you've never walked through, and it's scary, God says, I am with you. I'm with you in this present moment. He says, I will keep you. I will keep you wherever you go. When threats and fears come into our lives, he, he speaks these words that we read in Psalm 121, right? When the mountains loom above us and we don't know what to do and we're scared about the journey that's ahead of us, where our feet are going to take us, he says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade. On your right hand, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He says, I will keep you wherever you go. You're my child. He says, I will bring you to the promised land. Whatever we face in this world, we have the promise of eternal life. I will bring you back to this land, to the land of promise. And for us, that is... that is paradise, that is heaven, that is to be with God. Wherever we go in life, we have the promise that God says, I will bring you back to myself. I will, if in Christ, if we have faith, we know as his children, 
that he has gone away to prepare a place, but he will come again so that where he is, there we will also be. We have that assurance even when we're scared. And he says, I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you to the land of promise and I will not leave you. It's the promise of Hebrews 13.5. God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Here's the testimony of the psalmist, Psalm 37, 25 through 26. I have been young, and now I'm old, so I've lived a little while. He says, I've got some experience, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. That doesn't mean it's easy. Jacob's life is not going to be easy. But 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10, we have this treasure in jars of clay, bodies that fall apart to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed and confused, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but you are never forsaken. You are struck down, but you are never destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be made manifest in our bodies. God meets us. He meets us in, in places of need, and he meets us when we're not even looking for him. When we're so lonely or scared or confused, he's looking for us. In that same story, Lord of the Rings, in one of the darkest places, darkest times on the journey, they're, they're kind of losing hope. And, and Sam, he looks up in the sky And he writes, the Tolkien writes this, he says, there, sorry, <laughs> this is, I cry at beauty. I think that's what I cry at, you know? It's just beautiful things, the beauty of the truth. Um, he says, there, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. the beauty of it smote his heart and he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Sorry. (laughs) We need light, you know, in darkness. We need a word from God. That's what he comes to us with. He comes with a word to us. So a word of blessing, a word of promise. Pastors tell you to read your Bible, not to just give you something to do in the morning, but because it's the light that you need in the darkness to know that God is there. So we need to be in God's word. We need to minister God's word to one another. You need to give God's word to others. That's the star that Sam sees. It's the truth that is high in the sky when everything else is dark. There's truth. I am with you. I will not leave you. I will bring you to the promised land. I will fulfill my promises to you. We need that. God meets us in places of need. Even in our darkest and loneliest places, he is with us. He is pursuing us. And what's our greatest need? We need a savior. 
We need someone to deal with this hostility that is between God and our sin. We don't need a vision. We need a Savior. And actually, we don't need a vision of a stairway. We need a stairway back to God. This picture says more than Jacob ever knew. Because Jesus, in what Joel read, alludes to this vision, and he says, I am the stairway to heaven. I am the one that you will see angels ascending and descending on. God, we see in this picture, he longs to be with his people to bless us. But our sin keeps us from going to him. And so Jesus, in the incarnation, as it were, comes down the ladder to us. He comes to us. He humbles himself as a human being. He lives and then he dies so that he can make a way for us. He takes our sin upon himself and dies in our place. He takes the punishment that we deserve. He's lifted up on a cross so that he can make a way between earth and heaven. Just ladder back to God. Faith in Jesus, it brings the blessing of God. It brings Jesus is the new Bethel. There are, they're not special places anymore where God resides. There's no certain gate of heaven. You're not going to lay your head on the pavement somewhere, and that is where God's presence is. But God's presence is in Christ, that he is the new Bethel. He is the one that brings the presence of God to us. We could go even further and say, are we not the new Bethel where the Spirit resides in us? And so we we see that in Jesus, God himself comes and he says, I'm with you. I will keep you. I will not leave you. I'm going to prepare a place for you and you will be with me for all eternity. He's come down the ladder. He's made a way for us to get up the ladder. He himself has gone up the ladder in the ascension, and he waits at the top, as it were, like Stephen saw him standing, and one day he will come about halfway down that ladder, and we'll meet him halfway, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, because of Christ. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. He is our ladder. How do you respond? How do you respond to this blessing? How does Jacob respond? Jacob responds like a heel-grabbing, deceiving, self-made man, who isn't ready to change. That's how Jacob responds. Look at his response. Verse 20, what's it begin with? If. Let me give you a condition, God. If you will be with me, if you keep me like you say you will, if you give me bread, give me some clothes, so that I come back here like you tell me you're going to, then I'll worship you. Then you can be my God. Gives him conditions. At first, Jacob is taken back, right? He fears. But then, you know, the old Jacob rears his ugly head. He treats God like he treats everyone else. And he says, if you will do this, then I will follow you. This is the natural response of the human heart. God, I will follow you if. If you protect me, if you'll bless me, if you'll give me this girlfriend or this boyfriend, if you'll help me pass this test, if you'll give me this job, if you'll give me this house, if you'll not take this thing or this person from me, if you'll do all these things, okay, then I'll follow you. God's love for us may be conditional, but ours is not. (laughs) We are like Jacob. We try to force God's hand. We try to cut deals. We try to negotiate with him. We try to negotiate with the God of the universe. That's what we do in our hearts. We could respond to God's revelation like Jacob did, and maybe you do. Maybe that's how you're just saying, all right, wait and see. Let's see what God does, and then maybe when I come back, I'll serve him. Or we could be like Nathaniel in John 1. So you saw Nathaniel, that's when Jesus alludes to Jacob's ladder, but how, how did Nathaniel respond? Jesus, at first he's, they say, Jesus is here, he's the Messiah, he's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel's response is, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, you know? I mean, pick whatever you want, whatever town you hate, 
growing up, nothing good comes out of that place. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But then Jesus comes and says a simple word, identifies who Nathaniel was. And what's Nathaniel's response? You're the son of God. You're the, the king of Israel. And Jesus says, you believe because of that? You ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait about what's coming. And he points to the cross. And in Christ, we've seen more than Jacob and more than Nathaniel have ever seen. But when God meets us, how are we going to respond? Are we going to come up with conditions like Jacob? Are we going to delay? Or are we going to respond with faith like Nathaniel and just say, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. What else do you want God to do? I mean, he's made the way in Christ so clear. And living and dying and coming, what are you waiting for? What's your if? If God would do this, how is that going to be something that would convince you to walk after him? He's done everything. As we walk through life, like Jacob, like maybe Sam and Frodo, we we don't know where our feet are going to take us, you know? Some days it's it's really sunny, and some days you're in the valley of the shadow of death, or you feel like you're in hell itself. Sometimes you sing that chorus, and now I'm happy all the day. And sometimes you can hardly find any joy. And yet God meets us, doesn't he? He meets us unworthy as we are, running from him. And he says, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you. I will do what I promise to do for you in Christ. I will bring you to the promised land at the last day. We don't have to cut deals with God. We just say, we believe. By faith we say, you are my salvation. You are my king.